This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, we need your bread. We need you to feed us. We are hungry. Would you feed us with your word? Would you nourish us with your truth? Would you feed us with your body? Come, Lord Jesus, would you speak to our hearts, each one of us? Would you send your Holy Spirit to give us ears to hear your voice? We need you and we love you. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This morning we're continuing in our series on Ephesians. And um, we made it to Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, uh, which is one of my very favorite verses in the scriptures. When I was in college um, and I would like write letters to someone or notes to someone, we, I would, after my name, write Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Um, and because I love that scripture. And what's interesting to me is probably because I love it, um, and so it's kind of self-evident to me why it's awesome, uh, it's hard for me to preach on. And part of the reason is because when you, when you couple it with um, 4.25 and on to 5 through 2, it can start to sound like this list of moralisms. Uh, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. And it kind of can remind me of um, this book. This is going to date me, but this is what it makes me think of. As in um, the early 90s, there was this book that swept the nation, uh, sort of surprisingly, I mean, given its content, um, called Life's Little Instruction Book. Do you guys remember this? It was on every coffee table it, in America. Everyone I knew had one. It was this trend. And in the early 90s, the book was on the New York Times bestseller list constantly for over two years, which is, as an author, astounding. That I mean, it's... Um, there, it's, it's one-sentence phrases. So whoever thought of writing a book full of one-sentence uh, tips for life and then uh, got that on the New York Times bestseller list is a genius. And uh, the book has been translated into 35 different languages. So it was this huge hit, and it just has kind of like life pointers. Like, here's some. Have a firm handshake. Look people in the eye. Say thank you a lot. Say please a lot, learn to play a musical instrument, sing in the shower. Um, by the way, when I was looking through it, some of them, it's, it laughs because it doesn't, it's the early 90s. So they say things like, have a great stereo system, always have stamps. And you're like, oh, just wait. <laughs> but it was this huge hit. And, um, and that's fine. Those are all really good that's all very good advice to have a good handshake and to sing the shower. But this passage, I'm worried, can read a little bit like Paul's little instruction book. Like, uh, tell the truth, 
don't sin in your anger, don't steal, be kind. And in other words, it sounds like it's some kind of life tips to aspire to. And my job is to kind of read them off to you inspirationally and then slap you on the back and be your cheerleader and kind of cheer you on and say, okay, guys, go be good. Go be good out there this week. You can do it. I know you can. Maybe you weren't last week, but you can be good this week and kind of send you off. Uh, But Paul isn't doing that here. There's more happening in this passage than a little instruction book for life. He is casting a vision for the church about what life looks like, what life together looks like. The the kind of life that Jesus enables through his death and resurrection. To steal a phrase from Eugene Peterson, Paul's asking, what would community look like if we were to practice resurrection together? Before we were redeemed by Jesus, we were slaves to sin. Augustine, St. Augustine describes this in Latin, of course, because that's the language of theology. He describes this as non passe non pecare. Means, it means not able not to sin. So two, it's a double negative, not able not to sin. This doesn't mean that non-Christians cannot do kind and nice things or be kind and nice people. But it does mean that our most natural disposition before Christ The way our hearts tend to turn is away from God and towards ourself, even towards our own salvation, seeking our own salvation and justification, and to seek our own way. And Jesus took the power of death, and he took the power of sin, and he purchased our freedom from sin. He purchased us out of slavery So that we are no longer slaves, but we who are baptized into Christ are able to live life, not turn towards the self, not trying to save our own lives, but turn towards God, the God who justifies us, the God of our salvation. Augustine, again, I'm making you uh, theologians and Latin students this morning. He calls this passe pecare, passe non pecare, that after Christ we are able to sin and able to not sin. Christ did not just die so that you as individuals can avoid going to the bad place after you die and go to the good place instead. Jesus, in his death and resurrection, enables you now to live a life in the power of God. And not only that, he is calling us and enabling us to be like God. That's just shocking. He doesn't mean that we are to be God, to be clear. We don't become God, but we look a little bit like God. That's the call, to imitate God, to look like him. Ephesians 5, uh, 1 and 2, which are the verses we're going to kind of zero in in this morning, says, be imitators of God, therefore, as Dearly loved children, or like dearly loved children. This doesn't say be imitators of God, and maybe if you do a good enough job imitating God, he'll tolerate you. It doesn't say be imitators of God, and he'll keep anything bad from happening to you, and your life will work out the way you'd hoped. 
It also doesn't say be imitators of God as slaves or God's employees or to be good little girls and boys. It doesn't say that. It says be imitators of God as dearly loved children. The call to a life of righteousness, to imitation of God, is not because God is dependent on you to save yourself. He's not looking for you to be righteous enough to click over the scales so that you can save yourself. It's because God wants you to be free. We imitate our joyful and good and wildly free God. And in so doing, we become people like him who are joyful and good and wildly free to love and to be loved, to give and receive love freely. This morning, if you are in Christ, you are a dearly loved child. I can assure you of that. There is nothing that can undo that. There's nothing you have to do to earn that. And it is out of that reality, that unshakable reality, that you are called to imitate God. Kids who are loved by their parents will start to imitate their parents. They start to pick up their mannerisms. They start to look like their parents. And even kids, this isn't just genetic resemblance, because even kids who are adopted have come to look like their parents. Sociologists call this convergence of appearance. It's when people who aren't related, but who share family and life closely together begin to look like. This is an actual sociological phenomenon, convergence of appearance. And by the way, this is why old couples that you see who've been married forever since the dawn of time start to look alike. <laughs> this is proved, by the way, in experiments. This is a real thing, you're not imagining it. That when people, um, they brought in people and they gave them individual photos of complete strangers and asked them to pair them. And if a couple had been married over 25 years, the strangers looking at their photos were able to, um, more times than not, pair them off, were able to put them together. Even, this is interesting, is if they were of different ethnicities and races, people were able to pair folks who'd spent life together. Scholars don't know exactly why this is, and there's all kinds of different speculation as to why, but the going theory that I like is called something, it's um, called subconscious mimicking. And it essentially means that we mimic those who are closest to us in order to belong into a community. We start to use the same facial expressions, the same hand gestures as our close friends, our and our family members. You probably have noticed this. Um, and so when we are with our beloved or our beloveds and our family for a long time, we start to ha use the same expressions. And because of that, over time, the lines on our face begin to look the same. And so people, even people that look different, Married couples who've been together a long time, people subconsciously are able to pair them because their lines on their face start to be the same. I love this idea. I think it's beautiful because this is what the passage is calling us to. We in the church are the beloved children of God. And by knowing and walking with God over time in closeness and intimacy, we come to have the same uh, metaphorically, if you will, we come to have the same lines on our face as God. 
We come to love what he loves. We come to smile at what he smiles at. We come to weep at what he weeps at. We come to imitate God. And just like old married couples start to look alike, Paul is saying that as the bride of Christ, you are to slowly come to look like your groom. We will look more and more like God. The church is the community on earth that is supposed to reflect what God looks like, to have the same lines on our face as our beloved. This church even, Ascension, is supposed to look like what God looks like. We're supposed to reflect God's character, the way we treat each other. We're supposed to look a little like what a family of God would look like here on earth. That's a huge and tall order this morning, to look like God together. Some of you are about to hide under the seats. So what's that look like to reflect God? Let's look. Paul says that to look like God is to be a truth teller, to tell the truth, to not tell lies, to not bear false witness. Why? Because God, our Father, tells the truth. He is the truth. He never lies. He says to be self-controlled. He says, be angry and do not sin. This is quoting from Psalms. It's okay to be angry. It's part of the human experience. It's important sometimes to be angry. But in your anger, do not sin. Grow to forgive. Have self-control. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Why? Because God in his anger does not sin. God is a God who is self-controlled. God is a God who is forgiving. He says, be a giver in this passage in Ephesians 4. He says, don't steal. And it's interesting because he doesn't say, let him who has uh, been a thief steal no more so that he can support the free market economy or so that he can um, you know, make a lot of money on his own and be self-sufficient. He says, let him who has been a thief not steal so that why? so that he can give generously. This idea of we're being called to this radical generosity that the end of material wealth is generosity. That's the point of material wealth, is to give it away, to share with those in need. And why? Because God is a giver. Because God is endlessly generous. Because God constantly gives to those who are in need. Because he doesn't hold anything back from us. And Paul says, be a builder of others. Do not use words that hurt or offend others, but go out of your way to bless and strengthen people with the way you use your words. Why? Because God uses words. God uses words to build others up, to comfort. God uses words to be kind. And that brings us to his last, Paul's last admonition to his people, which is that he says, he says, finally be kind to each other. Cherish tender feelings towards one another. That's how N.T. Wright translates, be tenderhearted. Have tender feelings to each other in this room. Why? Because God is kind to us. Because God has tender feelings towards you. Do you believe that? Wright says about this passage, kindness is one of the purest forms of the imitation of God. 
How would it be if God were the kind of God who is always making snide and bitter remarks at us? What would worship be like if we thought God had been talking about us behind our backs, putting us down to others? How would we feel if we thought we couldn't trust God to tell us the truth, if he was always losing his temper with us? Do you believe that? This morning, do you believe that God is angry and barely tolerating you? Or do you believe that he's a truth teller, that he's self-controlled, that he's quick to forgive, that he loves you, even with a tender and pure and kind kind of love? That is the God we proclaim this morning. And for some of us here, we're going to have to become atheists to false gods, to gods who are unkind and cruel in order to know and meet the true and kind God. If God, in your mind, the way you picture God is that he's barely tolerating you, that he's losing his temper, that he's capricious and rolls his eyes at you, that he's disgusted with you, that is not the God we see in Jesus. And that is not the God that calls you, that called you, his dearly loved children. Do you want to see what God looks like? Look at Jesus. He is kind to sinners. He's forgiving and loving. He doesn't leave us to our own sin. He comes and rescues us. He calls us out of sin, out of his love for us, into the freedom of imitating God. That's what you were set free for. That's what you were set free for not to create your own autonomous individual self, but the freedom of imitating God, the freedom to know God with such intimacy that over time you come to look like him. So this week, um, today, we're going to do something a little bit different because I'm going to give you an exercise that we can do together as a community. I'm going to give, and I did this to nine too, so... I'm treating you equally, but I'm going to give you some homework this week so you can write this down, and there will be a test. Um, And then I'm going to to tell you a secret. There won't be a test, but I am going to give you homework, and I hope you do it. And then I'll give you a secret. And I'm doing this because I think this passage uh, gives us homework and then tells us a secret, a little secret hidden in it. So here's your homework, all right? This community is to look like God. So I want, for the next week, from this moment until you come back here next week, for everyone here, and, I'll, and me too, to be kind. In fact, I want you to be kind to each person you meet in such a way that it reflects God's kindness to you in Jesus. I want you to be kind online, even on Twitter. I want you to be kind in person. I want you to be kind when you're tired or hungry. The latter is particularly difficult for me. I want you to be kind when others are not being kind to you. I want you to be kind in your work to the person that annoys you and drives you crazy. I want you to be kind to people behind their backs. I want you to be kind to people every second of this week in your thoughts. Every person you meet, I want you to be kind in your thoughts, even motorists on the highway.
Okay. So here's where I say, go out there this week and be perfectly and constantly kind. Be imitators of God as God has called you to be. One, two, three, break. Go team. We can do it. Okay, so here's the secret. I I don't actually expect that you will be able to do that assignment perfectly and completely successfully. I don't think that you will be, and I like you, but I don't think that you will be able to perfectly show God's kindness, to mimic God's face on earth. Because you are able not to sin, but we still sin. We are sinners. But I do want you to truly try. Give it your best shot. See how long it lasts you. Don't, I think, I'm predicting I might not make it to the parking lot. So you're in good company. But I want you to try. And I want you to try in part because I think that if you do, you will come to see why Jesus died for you. You will come to see why you need a savior. And because when you fail, at this assignment, when you fail to imitate God, to be a truth teller, or to be self-controlled, or to be kind, your response to that failure, to your own failure, will show you who you think God is. Your response to that failure will show you what you think the character of God is like. Here's responses that we um, can predict when we set out to do something like this, to our kindness homework. Some of you will give up and you'll say, this is just how I am. Look, I'm just moody. I can't help it. I'm angry. I was just, I've always been like this. This is my authentic self. But if you are in Christ, you can't say that because in this passage, we see that you are marked, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit, that God's Spirit determines your authentic self. Your authentic self isn't your old patterns, but the self that God has marked by his spirit as his own. That is your true self. Some of you here won't give up uh, when you fail to show kindness, but you'll try to get there by your own strength. You'll be your own drill sergeant. You will try to bootstrap your way into loving someone, even if you know you really hate them. You will try harder, you will work harder, you will achieve your goal. These are goal-oriented people, and they put their hope in their own ability to keep this law, to be as kind as they are called to be. And then inevitably, when you're, if you're honest with yourself, if you're not able to perfectly imitate God, you'll lower the standard. So, okay, you can't reflect God's perfect kindness. No one can do that. But, I mean, you're pretty kind. You're kinder than that other guy. (laughs) And so you lower the standards of God's holiness and compare yourself to those around you as the standard because you think that's a standard you can reach. So I don't think you can achieve this by your own efforts but I want you to try to show kindness this week. Because when you fail, this is what I want you to do. I want you to practice when you fail to go in prayer to Jesus and to fall on Jesus' kindness to you. 
I want that to be a moment to remember that you are a dearly loved child and to ask for the Holy Spirit that has marked you to transform your heart so that you can walk as an imitator of God. I want you to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit, and I want you to use even your failures as a way to remember Ephesians 5, 2. Paul here says that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, an offering and fragrant sacrifice to God. I love that, offering and fragrant sacrifice to God. It's an interesting phrase. Why does he call Jesus an offering and fragrant sacrifice to God? Why that particular phrase? So here's, I'm going to tell you, it's part of the secret that Paul hid right here in plain view. So in Exodus 29, God is telling his people how to set Aaron and his sons apart as priests. He's giving them instructions about how to set these people apart as holy. Holy literally means set apart. And this is what he says. This is what the scripture says in Exodus 29. Then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram, and you shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a sweet-smelling offering to the Lord. And then he repeats this phrase in a few more verses. He talks about the ram again, and he says, put it, he says that the burnt offering is a, this is a quote, pleasing aroma, a fragrant sacrifice before the Lord. This holy priesthood, the descendants of Aaron, these people were set apart as holy. They were made holy by a sweet-smelling and fragrant offering sacrifice to God. And Paul is calling on this passage from Exodus. I'm, from Exodus 29, he's calling on this passage and saying, Christ is the sweet-smelling sacrifice. Christ is that fragrant offering. He is the ram that was burnt whole on the altar. He is the one who was the fragrant offering to God that set apart, that made holy a people to imitate God. Christ is the sweet-smelling sacrifice. Let your failures to imitate God draw you to Jesus your sweet-smelling and fragrant sacrifice. The sacrifice that made us as a people set apart and holy. Our task this week as believers is to be who we are, to be who Christ has already made you, that in his sacrifice he made you holy, he was an offering and fragrant sacrifice to God to set apart a people. And we are to be who we are, to walk as those dearly loved children. So go imitate God this week. Be as close to him as you can be. Be as intimate with God as you can be in prayer so that you will come to look like him, that you will come to share the lines on his face. And when you fail to look like God, 
when you fail to imitate him, come back to Jesus and cling to him as your offering, your sweet-smelling offering and fragrant sacrifice to God. That is what he is for us. And it is by that that we can be called beloved children. Walk as beloved children and cling to the sweet-smelling, fragrant sacrifice of Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.